I'm Alex Perrine. I'm a staff writer at The New Republic. And I'm Laura Marsh, the magazine's literary editor. And this is The Politics of Everything, a show about the intersection of media, culture, and politics. We're talking today about how to restart the U.S. economy on the other side of the coronavirus pandemic, whenever that comes. What kinds of measures could bring us out of the shutdown? And what should a post-COVID economy look like? Everyone in politics, many in the media, have been talking about how to restart the economy. This is the only podcast brave enough to ask whether to restart the economy. That is, even if it is possible, given the scale of the damage so far, do we actually want to return the American economy to the state it was in beforehand? A crisis like this can be an opportunity to fundamentally change how our economic systems work and who they work for. To that end, we've assembled a task force of top experts, all of whom happen to publish in the New Republic magazine, to advise us on what they would do, not just to restart the economy, but to remake it. So our first expert today is the economist Dean Baker, who has a piece in a coming issue of The New Republic called Building an Economy That Works Again, which offers a kind of practical blueprint for stimulating the economy. Dean is a senior economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research and a visiting professor at the University of Utah. Thanks for coming on, Dean. Thanks a lot for having me on. So in your piece, you have like a fairly wide range of proposals to help the U.S. economy recover after the impact of coronavirus. What would you say is the single most important thing that we could do to stimulate the economy? Well, a really important thing to keep in mind is that this is a supply side story, not just the demand side story. So it's common for for many of us economists to think about how we boost demand. If you go back to the Great Recession, that was the demand story. We just had to get money into the economy, get people to spend money or get firms to invest. This is more than that, because we have a situation that at least until we have an effective vaccine, we're going to have to worry very much about the spread of the coronavirus. And what that means is we have to do things that allow businesses to reopen safely. That's going to be a major constraint. So normally when people talk about boosting the supply side, they're talking about measures like tax cuts for businesses, right? And in this case, what the suppliers actually need is an environment (laughs) in which their customers and their own suppliers don't have to worry about catching coronavirus. Exactly. And a clear story of this, uh, President Trump just announced he's going to require the meatpacking companies to stay open. Well, the reason they were closing was because their workers were getting sick and in some cases dying. So the answer there isn't to order them to stay open. If we want meatpacking plants to operate, we have to make sure they can operate safely. So there really are supply constraints here that we have to think through carefully and try to address as quickly as possible until we have an effective vaccine that makes it safe. But that even a best case scenario is at least a year, probably a year and a half off, and of course could be much longer. Well, we don't know how long it'll take, but the bulk of your piece is about how the, the crisis creates an opportunity, not just to restore the economy as it was, but to create a better one and a fairer one. And I think uh, you have a lot of big ideas about things that could be done when we are through the worst of this. And uh, your biggest one that I know you've talked about for years is uh, intellectual property reform. 
Yeah, this is one of these things. I've been harping on patent copyrights for more than two decades now, um, partly as a part-time activity because I'm primarily a macroeconomist worrying about things like recessions and inflation and that sort of stuff. But it is very important, and it's remarkable to me how few economists uh, recognize the importance of this. So the point here is that we redistribute a huge amount of money upward to the people who are in position to benefit from patent and copyright monopolies. Uh, Bill Gates is my poster boy here. He's incredibly rich, one of the very richest people in the world, because we'll arrest people if they make copies of Microsoft software without Bill Gates' permission. Now, there was a motivation for that policy. It was to provide incentive for them to create software, or more generally to innovate, to do creative work. But we don't have to make it as generous as it is. We don't have to make it as long as it is. That's the point that I've been trying to make is that we can have alternatives. And particularly in the context of, of this crisis, um, we're seeing a massive effort internationally to develop treatments and vaccines for the coronavirus. And much of this is being open sourced. Well, what that means is that you have scientists, researchers saying, oh, look at this. We did this particular experiment and we found X, Y, and Z about the coronavirus. We're posting on the web so that researchers all over the world could benefit from that. Now, that's a really great thing, but that doesn't typically happen because most of the time you have Gilead or Merck or someone else is paying for the research. Last thing on earth they want to do is post it on the web so that their competitors could benefit from it and run down to the patent office and get a patent from that. I often tell people drugs are cheap and they look at me like I'm a lunatic. Well, I know they, they charge a lot for drugs, but it's very rare that drugs are actually expensive to manufacture and distribute. Almost invariably, we could take the most expensive drug, manufacture and distribute it for a few hundred dollars. It might sell for tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands, but that's because of a patent monopoly. So I would love to see us go the direction of open source research, publicly funded, it would almost certainly advance more quickly. And then we'd get rid of this problem of having high-priced drugs. And it's incredible. Very few people realize how much money is involved here. We're going to spend around $500 billion on prescription drugs in 2020. We just snapped our fingers and got rid of all patents and related protections. We would almost certainly spend less than $100 billion. So that difference of $400 billion dwarfs almost all the issues we ever debate. The whole food stamp budget is $70 billion. So to my mind, this is a really, really huge issue and one that just unfortunately gets very, very little attention in public debate. As you know, pharmaceutical companies say, well, we need to charge exorbitant prices and we need our patents to last a long time and be protected because that's how we fund cutting-edge research. And clearly we're seeing right now that if you just have a big pot of money from the government, from philanthropy or whatever, hopefully from the government because it's more reliable, you can get scientists to collaborate on this research without having a drug company need future profits. That's exactly right. And again, we already are spending over $40 billion a year on biomedical research through the National Institutes of Health. There's other pockets of money that I'm sure add to 4 5 $6 billion coming from the federal government. And as you say, the private philanthropies, the Gate Foundation, others that put up money. We could pay for the research up front. So it's not a question that, of course, the researchers have to be paid. The research is expensive. We have to cover that cost. But once the drug has been developed, it's a sunk cost. So at the point where we're actually selling the drug, the costs involved are simply the cost of producing it and distributing it safely. And almost invariably, that's cheap. I think as Lori Garrett pointed out when we talked to her, pharmaceutical companies, they don't do a lot of research on vaccines because you only make money once if you cure a disease. I don't know if you saw the story in the New York Times the other day, but these scientists in Oxford have a promising vaccine for COVID-19, but 
they can't bring it into North America because the North American pharmaceutical companies demand exclusive worldwide rights. So right there, there's, there's the innovation that, that patent protection gives you. Yeah, the dream for the pharmaceutical industry is a, a drug that you have to take continually. So bringing this back to the post-coronavirus economy, is the idea here both that reforming intellectual property would lead to a vaccine more quickly, but also that that money saved, that $500 billion, would go into consumer spending, essentially? Yeah, I mean, if we could save $400 billion a year on prescription drugs, that's an awful lot of money that could be spent on daycare, on uh, free college, on, you know, your whole list of things that we could put in there. And this gets back to the issue I was talking before about income distribution. One of the reasons why we have this problem with so much income going to, say, the top 10 percent, particularly top 1 percent, is patents and copyrights. That's how Bill Gates got his money. And people aren't quite as wealthy, but people might be making 500,000 a year, a million a year. Very often it's because of intellectual property rights. And the flip side is when those people who aren't benefiting from patents and copyrights, a factory worker, a truck driver, a person working in a restaurant, they're paying more for drugs. They're paying more for all sorts of things, which in effect lowers their wages because intellectual property rights. In, in your piece, you talk about the fact that investment is so unequally directed towards technology, not just biomedical research, but tech companies like Facebook or tech startups. And if intellectual property were reformed, we would see investment in a wider range of sectors. Yeah, well, investment is going to seek out the greatest return. I mean, that just kind of follows. And we've created a situation where patent copyright monopolies mean that technology often is the area where you have the greatest return. Now, there's other issues when you get to something like Facebook, I'd put Google in there where our antitrust authorities have largely been asleep at the wheel for the last four decades. So I think there are serious antitrust issues there as well that go beyond just patents and copyrights. You have two immensely profitable companies that uh, almost certainly have an extraordinary level of monopoly power that allows them to capture incredible profits in their sectors. One thing that really interested me about your piece and that struck me as quite unusual uh, was the issue of taxes. When we're talking about inequality, we tend to think that one of the first things we should do is to tax the very wealthiest a lot more so that they're paying a larger share and putting that money back into society. I've just been looking at Thomas Piketty's new book, and that's his kind of major proposal is that taxes are the way to reduce inequality. Uh, but your piece offers a very different argument. Yeah, I'm not opposed to more progressive income taxes, but I think people have exaggerated the extent to which the tax system has become less progressive over the last four decades. Just to take the most obvious example, the federal income tax, the top rate used to be 70 percent. Now it's 37 percent. But if you look at a little more closely, we have the the Medicare tax, which didn't used to apply to all income. It does now. It's, I think, three and a half percent. And then on top of that, you have places like California that has a 13 percent top marginal tax rate. New York City, you'd pay over 11 percent. So you're still looking at a situation where top earners are paying over 50 percent, at least in important parts of the country. It's not as though I'd say it'd be a bad thing if you could raise that five percentage points or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's the main 
mechanism for reducing inequality. And there's been a lot of research on this, including by uh, Emmanuel Saez, who's, of course, Piketty's co-author in many works, a very good economist. And he shows that most of the inequalities actually come from before tax income, not after tax income. So my focus is on reducing the structures in the economy that generate inequality, which I think is twofold. One, it's a more effective way to do it because if you have a 90% tax rate, you're in effect paying people 90 cents to hide a dollar of income and they'll do it, you know, and, uh, you know, these people care about their money and that that's mm-hmm. just an incredible waste. I don't want to see a huge tax shelter industry and you will get that. We already have a big one. You'll make it much, much bigger. But the other thing is as a political matter, it's very hard to justify, oh, we have to have uh, copyright monopolies, patent monopolies because we want some people to get incredibly rich. I don't know how you could argue that politically. Mm -hmm. So the idea is change the structure of the economy so that we're not generating enormous fortunes for the top, top, top people. And then also change aspects of the economy so that ordinary people earning a kind of average wage aren't spending disproportionate amounts of their take-home pay on healthcare or prescription drugs and very highly patented technologies. That's right. That's exactly right. But when you add it all up, you add up drugs, you add up medical supplies, you add up computer software, you add up all the things where the price is driven up by patents and copyrights, it is a very big chunk of money. Mm -hmm. If we didn't have to pay patent-protected prices for drugs, that would be more money in our pocket. It takes a little step for people to realize that, but I think it's really important they do. Dean, thank you so much for talking to us. I hope that at least some of these ideas are actually implemented in the next couple of years. (laughs) Thanks a lot for having me on. We are now joined by Liza Featherstone, a uh, journalist and author who just finished an article for the New Republic called A Family Emergency about the extraordinary difficulties the pandemic has created for families and care workers. Uh, Liza, what is your, what's your big idea for uh, how we can not just reopen the economy, but make it a better economy for regular people after this? Well, I'd say that the pandemic has made abundantly clear that we all need a lot of help. Our society needs a massive public investment in care work. And this would put people back to work and also help make sure that we're better prepared for the next pandemic and for the aftermath of this one. Care work, by which I mean a scholar that I interviewed for the article, Tithi Bhattacharya, calls this the process of life-making, jobs that attend to the nourishing and sustaining of life. So um, K through 12 education, daycare workers, and all of the people who work in schools, um, nurses, doctors, physicians' assistants. We're going the opposite direction in New York State. We just lost a huge chunk of the education budget just after everybody found out how important school was by having no school. Um, Right in the middle of the pandemic, um, Governor Cuomo cut the hospital budget. As you say in your in your very good piece, what this has highlighted is the degree to which capitalism depends on this underappreciated work to function. And I'm speaking as a person in a household with two trying-to-work parents and one three-year-old. Uh, it's extraordinarily... <laughs> 
It's extraordinarily difficult for any capitalism to get done in this house right yeah. now. Yes, capitalism and is yet, really tough to get through these days. And yet, even in this moment, despite that, there's still an unwillingness to adequately subsidize that work that keeps the gears of capitalism running. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Individual capitalists don't have much incentive to look at the system as a whole and ask what needs doing. So similarly, they really don't care that future capitalists are going to have trouble making profits because of environmental apocalypse or mass human extinction. They're concerned about the very short term. We sort of see the at the extremes um, of, of this, um, a lot of um, a lot of women experience things like pregnancy discrimination. You know, simply being fired or not accommodated when they become pregnant, and that's again because the the individual, like while capitalism as a whole needs her to have and raise that baby so that there will be a future worker to do capitalism, um, her boss doesn't care about that. You mentioned um, pregnancy discrimination. Pregnancy is, for many people, the beginning of this process of being a parent where you're expected to hide it. (laughs) You know, don't worry, my work won't suffer. And then you're a parent and you're sort of like meant to keep your kids out of the picture. I wonder if we could be seeing a change of attitude just because this work is more visible and you can't expect people who are at home looking after kids, trying to keep life going, to completely... (laughs) disguise it. Yeah, I think that it is a real moment of political potential where where that boundary between work and home has collapsed and that care work has become visible and a part of the workplace in many cases, you know, where your toddler is going to be in your meeting and there's just nothing many people can do to prevent that. <laughs> you know, in, mm-hmm. It also makes visible some of the f- largely female workforce that is paid to provide care work. So nannies at the high end, but at the everyday end, um, you know, teachers and paraprofessionals, teachers, aides, now that people are having to um, not only do without it, but do it themselves all day. So I think there's possibly um, room politically, both for more empathy and more um, cold hard investment. Right. I think it might be counterintuitive to some people to think of it this way, but this is exactly why it is actually a plan for the broader economy, is that this work actually needs to be invested in. It's good for everyone. Exactly. Exactly. It would be stimulative, but it would also address a lot of um, real social needs. Yeah, people are used to talking about care somewhat dismissively as work that doesn't create wealth, that's reproductive labor. Um, But people have seen, I think, how incredibly important it is when that labor is withheld or cannot be performed, when um, daycare workers cannot run daycare centers to look after kids. And one thing I really liked about your piece was you talk about the notion of a birth strike, of conscious efforts to withhold this labor yeah, I think in some ways it's it's unconscious. I, I talk a little bit in the piece about Jenny Brown's work on the birth strike, interpreting declining birth rates in so many countries as women's refusal to do labor that 
with austerity, with less public investment in education and childcare and healthcare and all these things, and with continuing gender inequity in how care work is distributed in the home, you know, women are uh, refusing to do this labor. And that's a time-honored practice when work conditions become unacceptable <laughs> to go on strike. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I think that's a really interesting and, and provocative idea on her part. And you can view the politics of abortion as having attained even higher stakes um, as a result, you know, where abortion um, and birth mm-hmm. control are, are really needed by women in order to resist labor that has become simply too much. It's a particularly violent form of strike breaking. Yes. Right. (laughs) The metaphor works. Even though there's incredible potential in this moment, there's also the possibility that you can get a crackdown on care workers and, and measures to force women and the people who provide this work generally to do it without improving the system. Um, so I really like your suggestions and I, and I really want to see a movement and political leaders getting behind these ideas. Thank you so much. So we heard from Dean and Liza about two really big plans to change the economy after coronavirus. But we felt that the impact of the shutdown and the levels of inequality in society that already exist are so extensive that the economy does require more rethinking. So we expanded our task force and we have asked several more of our colleagues to come in and pitch us their best, least expected idea for restarting the US economy. Um, My name is Katie McDonough and I am a deputy editor at The New Republic. So let's say hypothetically, you're in the middle of a once in a century global pandemic. You have something like 26 million people out of work. um, And that may be also the best and only way to contain the spread of the virus is to find out how many people actually have it and then get a very detailed accounting of who those people have seen recently and where they've gone and then take steps to get them medical care and to limit their contact with other people. And now what if I told you that that could be a job that paid pretty well? So that's contact tracing as a jobs program. This is not my idea. I just think it's a good idea. It's basically how they have kept everything much more under control in other countries, specifically places like South Korea. There involves, I guess, a lot of what we would think of as surveillance. But your idea is basically we shouldn't just leave this up to, for example, tech companies that wish to give us more surveillance, but we should actually just make it something normal people can do, right? Yeah. So a group of physicians and public health experts involved in the Massachusetts contact tracing program wrote a pretty good piece about this recently for The Hill, basically arguing that like beyond the creepy tech implications of the app-based or surveillance-based approach, people are generally just better at doing this kind of work. So, um, you know, for a number of reasons, if you've tested positive for this virus that right now has killed more than 50,000 people in this country are probably rightly pretty scared. So on one really basic and human level, having another person on the end of the line asking you the detailed questions about who you've seen and where you've been, but then also expressing empathy to you and, and letting you know kind of that they're with you and that they're there to get you help 
I think that's probably more reassuring than just knowing that your phone is continuously sending out pings to indicate that you've been to the grocery store. But they also point to the fact that this is better in getting the substance of what the contacts are actually like. So you can have lots of data that says like you've been at X location and you were nearby X number of people, but that doesn't track the nature of your interactions. So, you know, maybe you've passed someone who tested positive on your way to the grocery store, but it's probably more meaningful to know that, let's say you like accidentally coughed in their direction from less than six feet away. There are just certain kinds of things that people are still better at doing than tech. It's interesting because this job already existed, right? Contact tracers already exist as jobs in public health departments across the country. But as the budgets for those departments contracted, so did the jobs. They just, people lost uh, this work. And so I think in addition to the necessity of the program and the, the kind of fundamental humanity of the program, it also is an opportunity for us to reinvest in our public infrastructure to say that not only are these jobs important right now, but they will probably be important in the future because I don't know if you guys feel this way, but I feel like I have not seen my last pandemic now that we're living through this. I think everything's going to be fine personally. <laughs> Good. But so you envisage this as a kind of long-term jobs program. I don't know that this would exist at the scale of what the current need is forever. But I think, yeah, these are just jobs. They should just continue to exist, I think. Mm -hmm. Jobs and also I feel like this would make people feel a lot more comfortable about going out and taking part in other forms of economic activity, right? Yeah. Like if I knew there was someone that was going to phone people in my family every so often and like work out how this thing was spreading through a community, I'd feel maybe more okay with like going to a cafe or something. I think, yeah, it's totally about having a sense of confidence that this actually is about your life and your neighborhood and the safety of, of going to the bagel store, basically. My name is Jason Lincolns. I am the deputy editor of the New Republic's politics section. So when I was thinking about the kind of like idea that we could use to reshape the economy after the coronavirus pandemic, I sort of wanted to hit like this kind of criteria. I wanted to be something that honored what we're learning about essential workers during the crisis, that the people who are actually doing all the sort of like work of keeping us alive and keeping society in motion aren't tech billionaires or VC douchebags, but like very, very blue collar people who do these, this kind of work that normally is pretty invisible unless something is going terribly wrong. I also wanted it to be something that we could build out upon and which wouldn't be necessarily some kind of unprecedented idea, but like a kind of blast from the past. And I wanted it to be an idea that would offer something restorative from the plague years, both in terms of reshaping our economy in a more middle and working class direction, but also doing some of the work of maybe restoring some of our lost faith in institutions. So my big idea was let's reinvest fully, more fully, in the postal service. I really like this idea because I think you mentioned that this is one of the outposts of government that people actually interact with. And, you know, like you yes. actually see a human face on the government when you go to the post office. And it seems like a really good time for it because anyone who's relying on receiving packages or deliveries right now, to some extent, is really seeing how important the postal service is. I feel like the United States obviously is a contiguous landmass, but for many Americans, every place is like part of a remote archipelago. There are communities all across the country that don't really have a lot of interaction with big institutions, including the federal government. 
And the post office right now is maybe the last point of intersection with the federal government in a lot of places. I feel like this is an opportunity to deepen the relationship between citizens and their government and build trust and equity between the two. I'm also sort of talking about a big infrastructure project in a lot of ways, except instead of like laying down asphalt, we're actually taking human capital and putting it to work. One thing we could do with the post office, for example, we could bring back postal banking. We use the post office to provide all manner of like credit services to the poor and the unbanked, many of whom have to go without services like check cashing or bill payment or savings account or like small dollar loans. Right now, what's in place in communities that are providing those kind of financial products are payday lenders. Payday lenders sort of exist to do two things. The first thing they exist to do is entrap the poor in a perpetual cycle of indebtedness and poverty. The second thing they do is they generate excuses for why they should be allowed to exist. Postal banking would be a very, very benign and just way of bringing these kind of like important services back to communities that are currently essentially being served by like a sack of cobras. Mm-hmm. Right now, in every community in America, there are people who could make use of various government money, grants and institutions. And the chief obstacle to putting these existing government programs to work for people is the challenge of navigating the bureaucracy. And there's no reason that the post office can't be the locus of the activity of navigating the bureaucracy as well. The Postal Service is one of the best places for military veterans to find work after their service has ended. These are the kind of people who I feel pretty confident can navigate a Byzantine bureaucracy. And, you know, I keep calling this kind of a human capital infrastructure project. Not only can we export, like, knowledge and competence out into communities, but we can use the Postal Service as the means by which we identify especially talented public servants This might be especially needful whenever the Trump presidency ends because we'll be involved in a long-term project to reboot the government and bring talent back to it. It would be great if we could think long-term and start establishing a sort of farm league for public service right now. (laughs) It'd be great if if anyone was capable of thinking (laughs) long-term. Anyone in power. Yeah, that's... (laughs) That's very true. I love this idea. It's basically, we should have infrastructure and we should do it through the postal service. I'm Libby Watson, and I'm a staff writer at The New Republic. My idea to stimulate the economy, I thought I would steal America's best idea, which is the New Deal. The Civilian Conservation Corps from the New Deal, which spent a lot of money uh, employing people to maintain and expand America's national parks. You know, everybody seems to agree that national parks are wonderful and great, so why not spend a huge amount of money employing people to renovate and repair trails and many other things that need repairing in America's national parks. You know, apparently there is several billion dollars worth of of a backlog of repairs that are needed, things like, you know, maintaining bathrooms or campgrounds or whatever. And, you know, like so many things, those repairs aren't happening. Did the Trump administration wanted to increase the uh, entry fees for the national parks, didn't they? My understanding is that they proposed doubling the entry fee, which would have just been completely insane. And I think actually backed off that because it was so unpopular. Right. You know, people call national parks America's best idea. I would actually make them less American and more kind of European. I'd love the idea of bringing in, you know, like better public transit to national parks, you know, I mean, organizing mandatory public school trips to national parks. I think that would be great, you know, (laughs) just ship those kids off to Olympia and say, have at it. 
But, you know, there's a whole program of things you could do to make them more accessible and more kind of more for everybody, um, which is very much the opposite of what the Trump administration tried to do there. Um, one of my favorite national parks that doesn't exist is the Donald J. Trump State Park, <laughs> which you can see if you're ever driving back into New York from upstate. Um, and it would be a great candidate for your scheme because it's been closed since 2010 <laughs> due to budget <laughs> cuts to the National Park Service. That is a, a truly sickening idea. Um, maybe we should have a, a national park for every president. You know, we can have fights over whether, you know, Obama National Park gets funding or whatever. I think that would be fun. <laughs> Actually, that, that would be. Because one of the great things about your idea is that the national parks are incredibly popular already. There would be the usual manufactured outrage over that there is over anything. Uh, but for the most part, conservative Americans like the national parks just as much as everyone else. But that would be the way to get it forward in Congress would be to rename like three or four of them after Reagan. Mm. <laughs> this is just another great bipartisan policy from our council to reopen America. Exactly. I've always said that if Donald Trump wants to put his name on Medicare for All and pass it, I'm happy for him to do that. So if he wants to have the Donald J. Trump Conservation Corps or whatever, but it actually does good stuff, then sure, go for it. Why not? I'm Aaron Timms, and I'm a writer based in New York. So my idea for how to restart the economy and do it in a way that is hopefully going to take us away from some of the problems that have bedeviled our economy in the past is to look at the small business sector, um, specifically the hospitality industry and even more specifically restaurants. And what I would like to do is to have a government-backed fund for aspiring first-time restaurant owners where the government would essentially just give money without any conditions attached. So this wouldn't be a low interest loan. It wouldn't be some kind of tax credit or some other kind of conditional liquidity mechanism like we usually see in these circumstances. It would just be cash straight into the pocket of the aspiring restaurant owner to start their new venture. The condition would be that it would only go to people who have not owned restaurants before. So we wouldn't have the situation where, you know, the David Chang and the Danny Myers uh, are the ones getting the money. It would go to those people who have not had their own venture before and who would bring a beautiful spirit of creativity and energy and dynamism and all those types of things to the hospitality industry. And at the same time, we'd also be putting to use all those vacant spaces that are in our cities right now um, as restaurants have obviously had to shut down in response to the pandemic. I think there should be some kind of flaw. So it has to be a serious amount of, of money. It has to be at least sort of $100,000 or something like that. And I also think that there should be some provision made for most of the money to go to minorities, women and, and people of colour. I'm not just saying that to sort of be a cool guy. Uh, I'm saying that because I think these are the people who probably make the most interesting food and frankly, the hospitality industry doesn't need more white dude chefs uh, starting their own restaurants. I mean, I remember, you know, very beginning of the lockdown here in New York, I remember reading and, and thinking, uh, this is going to be devastating for restaurants in my neighborhood, I have a feeling it'll be the minority-owned restaurants and small shops that are going to be the most devastated by this. Right, and, right. You know, they're such a huge part of every community in New York. Right. Small, independently-owned restaurants. And I, was, I, I remember thinking, like, I'm sure the government response to this is going to be inadequate whenever they come up with it. I mean, obviously, we've had this Paycheck Protection Program, which has been a complete disaster from design to implementation. And you've had all these restaurant groups who have sort of finagled their way into the stimulus program and have taken the lion's share of the money. So you've had, you know, Danny Myers, Shake Shack, 
you know, Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, you know, Potbelly Sandwiches and, and all these other big companies have taken all the stimulus money and it hasn't gone to small business owners. The reason I've sort of focused on first-time restaurant owners is because if our objective here is to sort of reimagine the economy and not just reopen it, I think we, we should do everything possible to privilege voices and opinions and people who have not been in the conversation before. And there are so many people in the restaurant industry who have worked as line cooks or, you know, as sous chefs or things like that who would like to open their own restaurants, but they don't have access to the conventional channels of, of capital and finance. And this was another thing with the Paycheck Protection Program is it was linked directly to the relationship between the restaurant owner or the hospitality group owner and the bank. And so you had to apply through the bank for the money. I think the worst possible thing is if the big food companies come in create a monoculture right, uh, and kind of a stranglehold on what was an amazing dining scene. There's also, there are a lot of neighborhoods in Queens and a lot of neighborhoods in Brooklyn where these lovely neighborhood restaurants will be gone and replaced by empty storefronts. Right. You know, hopefully we can save as many of these existing businesses as possible, but your idea gets us to the other side of that without just uh, an empty storefront that no one's opening anything in. Right. And, and I guess the, the other piece is that there are just so many qualified, very talented cooks and chefs out there right now who have nothing to do. I was reading a bit earlier today as I was uh, conducting my extensive preparation for this section. I was reading a book by Jean-Paul Aron, who is a French food historian, and he wrote this book about food culture after the French Revolution. And what happened basically after the terror um, is that there was sort of this Rabelaisian carnival where people cut loose and indulged and went out and had a very good time for about five years before Napoleon came to power. One particular aspect of this little sort of interregnum between the revolution and, and Napoleon's rise was the flowering of the restaurant scene because there were so many chefs who'd worked at the court at Versailles or for members of the nobility who suddenly found themselves out of a job Obviously, circumstances now are, are very different to the French Revolution. Um, but <laughs> so far, uh, I'd, I'd so like far. to see. Right, <laughs> I'd like to see. I'd like to imagine that there could be something similar now, where you have all these people who have a lot of energy and, and talent and interesting ideas that they want to bring to the world, and it would be nice if we could just sort of throw some cash at them to do that. Okay, so those are the ideas our task force came up with. What do we think of them? There have been a lot of task forces assembled over the last month, and I would put ours as results, ours as ideas, ahead of any of the others. Easy. Mm -hmm. It's the best task force so far. Although I would call this more of a council. For right. I guess, yeah, okay. Yeah. It's more it dignified. Could, could. <laughs> I think Texas had a strike force. We're a serious literary magazine, so that was a council. Mm -hmm. This is The Politics of Everything. Please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And please do take advantage of the New Republic's Stuck at Home special offer. Get unlimited access to newrepublic.com for three months for just $5. It's available for a limited time at tnr.com slash special offer. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.